This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Today's podcast is brought to you by Born Primitive Outdoor. This is the clothing that I switched to because this company has been making workout training gear since 2013. It's veteran owned and operated. They've teamed up with Aaron Snyder to design these clothing systems for out west all their clothing is solid so you can cross over and wear it on date night and not embarrass your spouse uh, it's super functional and it's attention to detail and it's been battle tested by yours truly and i stand behind it use the discount code elk shape to take 20 percent off head over to bornprimitiveoutdoor.com guys welcome to the elk shape podcast we are finally getting around to the september recap pod I'm going to go solo on this one and break down the entire month of elk hunting. I will say this, though. If you're a visual individual, we've pieced together our entire month in a film, but we're not dropping it till the week of the Matthews new bow comes out. So launch week, uh, it'll be out like on a Wednesday, middle of that week, mid-November, maybe in between hunts or something. You can watch it on the big screen. It's a good production. I'm proud of it. I am. So let's get into the September recap. Uh, most of you, hopefully, have had an opportunity to reflect, which is what I've done. I've given myself several weeks to kind of sit down and think about September, rethink some of my strategy and some of the things I've done that need tweaking, what I've done that's worked, that I need to keep refining. And that's the beautiful thing of the gift of elk hunting is it is a year round pursuit, quite honestly, to do a proper, in my opinion, especially on the public lands. And that's where our adventure will probably start. I will say this. I was able to get my bow built about a day and a half before I headed out for elk season. So probably the day before I left was the day I was sighting in a new to me bow and more to come on that. I can't say much about it during, you know, where I'm a few weeks out from launch, but I'll just say, uh, I had a full day to shoot, get everything worked up as best as I could and head out the door. August, uh, 29th is when I headed out, said my goodbyes to my family with an open-ended hunt schedule, meaning I had potentially, I had four elk tags in my pocket. I didn't know when I would be home. And I had one hunt in particular that was actually scheduled. The rest were whatever's clever. So I'll just go ahead and break it down with the first hunt was going to be desert elk high country tree stand that I had set up in the summer when I went scouting trail cams that I had set all around the said high country water source. I had ran cameras at this location years prior. I didn't hunt there. I just ran cameras. I do that. I'm known for leaving cameras out year round in places. I have hunches that might be good. And the cameras weren't lying. There was double-digit bulls getting water in this high country spring. 
and I knew that water was scarce out there. So I set up a stand and cameras was able to get there on the 29th, the day before the opener in Idaho, which is August 30th. I hiked in to the stand, pulled the cards. Looking back, we just, for that area, it just, they got a lot of water in the summer. They got a ton of rain. The snowpack was super high from the winter prior, uh, like 300%. And so I'm certain there was water sources available to these elk that usually are not there. And these elk can get water out of puddles, out of spring. So the inventory was low, but we still had bulls getting water at said spring below my tree stand. The only problem with this setup is it is saddle, so it does tend to swirl. So I set up a stand kind of in a pinch point entry exit, not right over the water, about 400 yards from the water source, but where I had believed the elk to come in and come out. Opening day got up early and I hiked into the stand a new way where I thought it would be inconspicuous of other public land hunters. I wouldn't have to use a machine or leave it at the trailhead. I could just bushwhack in and I went for it in the dark and it was brutal. It was about 1600 vertical feet. And I got to the stand just as it was getting light. And it, it honestly, I only did it once. I can tell you that much. Like never again, will I do that route? Uh, I got cliffed out in the dark several times. Uh, it was just bad, but I got into the stand and I sat for a couple hours and I was honestly expecting to see elk come by right at first light after they get water and head to their bedroom never saw anything got down and then I checked all my cameras and just come to realize like this pinch point wasn't where the elk these elk weren't using this pinch point I needed to basically move the stand so I did I, I took it down and I moved it at a different pinch point still three four hundred yards from the swirling saddle but close enough to where I could get on these elk and then I hiked out in the daylight the way I came in and found a much easier way to get where I didn't get cliffed out. Ran tracking on Onyx, got back to camp, waited out a, a rainstorm, more rain, which is funny to go hunt over water while it's raining, but that's what I had as my plan. And went back for the evening sit, and it was blank sit. August 31st, back up in the dark, sitting my stand, and just not feeling it, man. So I got down late morning, checked cams, and... Again, I was getting elk only on one of my four cameras, and I had these cameras within a 400-yard radius, if that makes sense. So I was really trying to use the trail cameras as a way to mark where these elk entry exit. And these elk predominantly get water, it seems like, either right after dark or in the mornings on the way to the bed. So I moved the stand the third time and sat it that evening, this time much closer to the water, it got dark, I got down, and I was hiking out, and as soon as I cleared the timber and came into my first opening, the two bulls I was hunting were coming to the water. We locked eyes. It was too dark to see my pens. I could make them out. They were both six points, and they pieced out. September 1st, I decided, well, maybe I didn't bump them out of the area. And again, this tree stand water source usually has double digit bull density, and it's not a place where cows get water. It's only good for the first week of season, and that's it. Then the bulls start looking for ladies down lower. So it's kind of like a high country bachelor group deal. Sat September 1st, the morning, and I just was like, this is not happening. This is not going to happen. Another blank sit. So I pulled the stakes. I hiked out to my truck and I drove all the way to Montana to meet my friend Jeff Dodds, who works for Peaks Equipment. He was going to film me over in Montana. We were going to hunt Montana's opening day. Montana opens first Saturday of every September, usually this year, no different, September 2nd. And I had never really hung out with Jeff before. I wasn't sure if he could keep up. I wasn't sure if he was good at filming. I wasn't sure if he was good at hunting, which is more important than any of those so that he doesn't screw things up. But come to find out the dude was a stud. He was a baller. He was ready to go, ready to work hard. Love that about him. We camped at the base of a mountain. And so that made us do an hour drive, his four-wheeler, my dirt bike, to get into the elk country. So we had to get up extra early. And I was camping next to a random guy who kind of came up to me when I was setting up camp in the dark, waiting for Jeff to get there. And his name was Josiah and he introduced himself and uh, he had a lot of questions about the area. And honestly, I, I didn't know much. I was like, this is kind of a new to me spot. I've hunted around here, but not in this particular area. Um, I don't have a lot of information for you, but maybe check with me tonight. Super nice guy. 
and I thought he was hunting with his brother or whatever. But um, anyways, Jeff and I headed out opening morning in the dark, our dark ride through a steep mountain, National Forest Road. And then we got out, hit this main ridge. It's quite a significant um, like knife ridge. And then it opens up and then it really opens up into advantage that you can see um, into some several bowls. And, and so we got in there and it's just getting light and we hear our first bugle of the year and it's like high five. It's just so nice to hear a bull bugle September 2nd. And then we heard another bugle and another bugle. So we had three, maybe four bulls below us. We could hear cows mewing. And then I got glass on them, could see the cows, the bulls were below in the timber. And then Jeff spotted a bull higher than everybody. We looked up there and there was a big six by himself, not rutting, feeding. And he was only 250 yards from where we were. We literally grabbed our stuff and jammed right towards this bull. And we got probably close to 60, 70 yards, came around our last little feature that was blocking our view. And I'm knocked up, peek around. He's not there. He's disappeared. He, I don't know where he went. That was such a good bull. He was in such a killable spot. I thought, oh my gosh, we're going to get this done opening day. He disappeared. He Houdini'd. So then we went down to where the elk were that we just heard. And we got pretty close. Honestly, we got probably, I don't know, maybe 150, 200 yards from the herd. And we could tell they weren't going to come out of the timber. This is where they were going to bed for the day. And we got in there hunkered nice and tight. And then we could actually see cows from time to time getting up feeding all around us. And then eventually one of the cows picked off either me or Jeff. Jeff thinks it was him. So do I, but I didn't say that to Jeff. Anyways, the cow stares at us and then she takes off running. And I thought there was maybe six, seven cows total with maybe a herd bull and two rags. And so I just let out a nice soft bugle at her to kind of like see if she'll stop running and let everyone know, oh, she's just running from a bull. And then the, the herd bull bugles and then elk get up everywhere. And then pretty much we are swarmed by elk all around us. There was not six or seven cows. There was like 27, 28 cows, a spike, maybe another spike a five point rag bull and then the herd six. And so I just started getting right in this bull's face. We're bugling back and forth. A couple of times he was like super close under 40. I started, I was knocked up. We're ranging spots. I'm pushing the bull. I'm matching him. I'm mimicking whatever sound he makes. And eventually we split the herd up to where the cows are kind of half of them are with us and the other half follow the herd bull down to the very, very bottom in the Creek. And it's just kind of a, a standoff, if you will, where Every time he bugles, I bugle. I do calf calls, cow calls. I see elk all around me behind us and he's below us. And eventually he fades away. And so, so Jeff and I decided like, Hey, let's, these cows are going to reconnect with this herd maybe later today. But right now we need to go to this bull. So we followed that bull all day and he kept bugling and getting further and further away. And eventually we just kind of sat down and waited for him to chill out, which he did. And then uh, eventually we got up and started pushing towards him and he, again, went further and further. We just could not get him to participate in things that most elk do. He just wanted his cows away from us. So we stopped calling. We backed out. We got back over on the other side of the drainage we came in on and just glassed. And we got eyes on this bull and he was a really nice six. And, you know, looking back, we probably could have gone after him that night. It would have been a probably about a three mile drop with 45 minutes of daylight left. But we didn't, and I don't really regret it. It's just kind of one of those deals where we'd kind of already pushed our luck with him, and I knew we had another day. So we backed out, made it all the way back to camp. Our neighbor, Josiah, was asleep, so I didn't get a chance to talk to him. Went to bed, woke up early, had the hour-long ride again, went back to the same spot. However, this time we knew weather was coming. We had checked the inReach. The inReach does a pretty good job of telling you weather for your location. So I, I usually do that almost every day. And I knew a storm was coming in midday to late afternoon and it was going to be nasty. And it looked like it was going to be sticking around for two or three days. So I was like, all right, Jeff, this is, this is it. We got to kill something this morning. We dropped in right where we left off yesterday and got in on the same six point And he was pushing his cows up the drainage towards us. And we were like, oh my gosh, we're going to cut them off. So we're literally paralleling this herd. Um, they're slightly in front of us, so they're not getting our wind and they're slowly working their way up. I mean, it's just like a perfect pinch point, no calls needed. And we're probably only two, 300 yards out from closing the deal on this bull. And three spikes were basically bedded where we didn't know on the edge of the timber and we bumped them. And of course they ran directly towards the herd, scaring them away. 
game over. So thank you, Spikes. And then the storm came about three hours earlier than anticipated while we were trying to hike out. And the floodgates opened up and literally rivers were flowing down the mountain road. Lightning thunder, like with no break between the two. And we're on the wide open top ridges riding out through a river. Jeff's on his piece of crap four-wheeler. I'm on my old piece of crap dirt bike. And we're just riding down the mountain in rain and in a river. And eventually we make it to the bottom of the mountain where I hit gumbo. And my dirt bike just gets sucked deep into gumbo that collects. And if you guys know anything about dirt bikes, it gumbo will collect on your mud flaps in the back. And it just knocked my chain off. And of course the sprocket's still running in the front. So it, the chain gets knocked off and then sucked into the sprocket and it's jammed. It's going nowhere. Well, fortunately my good friend Josiah was coming down the mountain in his big old diesel truck and he gets out and it's like, Hey man, can I help you? I got a bunch of tools. We tried everything to get that bike chain off. Couldn't do it. Eventually after an hour, we decided to put the bike in the back of his truck that had a canopy. So we had to lay it flat. Gas is spilling everywhere. He's having to move stuff for me and throw me in the back and his wife's in the front seat. She's cool by the way. And Jeff's like, all right, I'll meet you at camp Dan. And he rides in front of us with his four wheeler. We make it about five miles. We got about five miles to go. And there's Jeff on the side of the road. He forgot to gas up his four wheeler the night prior. He's out of gas. And so Josiah probably thinks we're both idiots because we are. And so Jeff piles in the already crowded truck leaves his four-wheeler, and Josiah the hero gives us a ride another five miles back to base camp. From At base camp, I get all my tools out of my truck, and I try to get that chain fixed, and I don't have a 27-millimeter socket. And I should, but I don't, so I can't fix my bike. Jeff gets his truck and trailer, drives five miles back through Gumbo to get his four-wheeler that's out of gas, gets it loaded up, meets me, and I'm like, hey, man, it's supposed to rain the next 36 hours. Let's go connect with my dad in Idaho and hunt his area. He's got horses, and it'll be fun. We first need to go to the closest town so I can buy a 27-millimeter socket so I can get this bike up and running in case I need it the rest of September. We make it about 10 miles towards this town from camp, and i looking for my wallet because I keep it in the same spot in my truck always, and it's not there. So Jeff pulls over, and he looks at me as I'm doing like the rodeo dance around my truck, pulling everything out of every nook and cranny, looking for my wallet, which is not to be found because it's not there. Then I realized I, three days prior, I was gassing my truck up in a small town in Idaho, and I remember setting my wallet on top of the gas pump, thinking to myself, that's not a good spot. And then I was like, no, you won't forget it. Well, I forgot it. And that was three days ago. So 180, we got to drive hours back to this podunk town in Idaho to see if my wallet got turned in. And this is not even like a gas station. It's a 24 hour pump. So I'm hoping my wallet's just sitting on top of the gas pump and I need to get cell phone service to check my wallet, see if, you know, there's been charges on it, things like that. And I still need to fix this dirt bike and welcome to September shit show. So eventually I get to that town. It's like two hours of daylight left in the day. This is September 3rd. And I get a bunch of voicemails. This lady found my wallet. I don't know how she got my number. She tracked me down. She said she had it. She gave me her address. I drive over there. I thank her. And then there's another little small business in this town that I've had work done before on my bike because I've hunted this place for years. And they, I went over there. They were closed because the next day was Labor Day and knocked on the door anyways. And this kid came out and helped me get a 27 millimeter socket, got all the gumbo off my bike, got my chain back on, tighten the sprockets. Everything's good to go. Praise the Lord. I got a wallet. I got a bike that's fixed. And now we got to drive a few hours South to go meet with my dad. And we get down there to my dad's camp. He's hunting with Jake Webb, Josh Crawford, and my nephew Riley. And it's still raining. So Jeff Dodds and I, we, we jump in my dad's uh, horse trailer it's a nice one. It's got like, you know, living quarters, kitchen, all that jazz. It's not big, but it's got room and to get out of the weather. And we just hunker down for the next two days, waiting for the rain to finally stop. Finally, September 5th is our first day we get to go hunting in Idaho. And this was a 15 mile day. And not, it's just because it's the country is so big and wide open that if you see elk three, four, five miles away, you can go for them. You just got to walk. And so the fog cleared off, it got dry, and we were into elk all day. And eventually, towards the evening, we found a good bull to go after. 
and it was across the canyon and it was pushing nine cows and calves and it was bugling its head off and it looked like they were angling towards the creek to get water and it's pretty wide open jeff and i sent it we got down to the bottom crossed the creek and then angled up and eventually we got to um inside archery range with this bull we don't get great footage of it but it's a really nice bull it's a really nice bull and I got him at in my effective range, and I get him all set up, get my knock on, pull back, settle the pin. It's buried behind his shoulder, and I'm pulling, pulling, and my shot doesn't break. And then he steps out of my lane, out of my life, and I had to let down. That bull, I probably could have killed him if I hadn't forgot all my cow calls. I probably could have made a cow call sound with my mouth I didn't think to, and I... Uh, Definitely always have a diaphragm call in my mouth when I'm stalking elk, when I'm in tight with elk, in case you need to stop them or make a sound or whatever. Didn't have a cow call in my mouth. That probably cost me the shot. Then we had to walk all the way back to camp. And I'm telling you guys, we didn't get back till my dad's camp till like 1030. It was just the longest hiking day ever. And then the rain came some more. So we got rained out that next morning. And then Jeff had to jam home. So I lost my camera guy, but he was awesome. So we loaded up my dad's horses. We were going to set up a spike camp. And truthfully, I, I didn't, we didn't have to spike camp, but I thought it would give my dad a better opportunity to get into more elk to shave five, six miles from other hunters. He's 66 going on 67 this at this point in time. And so we loaded his horses up and him and Riley walked the horses in. And then I put my camp on my back and I rode my dirt bike in and we set up a spike camp. And so we parked the bike, tied up the horses, highlined them, built our camp, set it all up. And then we all went hunting for the evening. And then I stayed there for, man, that was the sixth. I stayed there for the next seven days straight out of that spike camp. And I got, I'm just going to give you the highlights and the lowlights and the observations because that's what you want to hear. I saw small bulls running big herds for the first three or four days. It was like the big dudes had no interest in the rut whatsoever where we were hunting and so the big bulls were solo but they weren't with the cows yet and the little dogs thought they were just running the show so i'd see a four point running 30 cows or i'd see a a small dainty five with 40 cows um the herd size where i hunt is typically 30 to 40 for most herds they're pretty big herds which also makes it really hard to kill because there's a lot of eyes and ears and it's very open it wasn't until i'd say the eighth or ninth is when it got like I could tell that the bigger bulls were starting to move in. But September 9th will live in infamy for me as I am the shittiest elk hunter on planet Earth. Should have been tagged out twice. Here we go. I found a pinch point where the elk would cross in the mornings and there was a spring that wasn't there several years ago but because of all the water this year and all the green the elk were spread out man. The elk usually aren't this spread out where we're hunting. They're usually more condensed. Like you could find three to 500 head in a couple square miles. I know that sounds crazy, but that was not the case this year. There was decent sized herds, 30 and 40, but they were spread way out. And I was seeing elk in places that mule deer or mountain goats would be. But there was green and there was water in places where... There's just usually not, and um, you got to be observant as an elk hunter. You have to be adaptive, and you can't just go off historical knowledge. You have to be able to take in the new information, and my new information was to hunt way higher than I've normally done and cover saddles and pinch points where elk are crossing. So I got to the saddle in the dark, and as it's getting light, I'm 10 yards from this little spring, and I hear a bugle, and it's close, and I can't see where it's coming from. I just know to knock up. So I knock up, put my release on, look up. Here comes a 326 point that I've been looking at the last few days. He's coming right to me. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, 
Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. 70, 60, 50, 40, and his eyes are looking straight through me. Can't draw my bow. And eventually, he comes to 20 yards and then finally turns broadside. I'm in the pretty much wide open. There's like a small Christmas tree I'm next to, and that is it. Once he turns broadside, I start drawing, and I have to draw slow. Otherwise, he's going to pick off that movement. Well, I draw super slow, and I come to full draw, and I hear a sound that's not good. I look down. My arrow is not on my rest. It's between my rest and the riser, and I'm at full draw. Today's podcast is brought to you by BlackOvis.com out of Salt Lake City. This is where I do all my hunting-related online shopping, and I use my own discount code ELKSHAPE that takes 10% off their already great prices. If your purchase is over $100, you can count on fast and free shipping. They have a vast selection of all the goodies, best customer service in the game. Head over to BlackOvis.com. The bull did pick off that little sound and has stopped looking at me 20 yards broadside 320 bull. Holy crap. So being the smart hunter I am, I just take my finger and try to flick the arrow up over onto the rest. And in doing so, the entire arrow pops off the string. I'm at full draw with no arrow on a dandy public land bull. I let down, he takes off. I'm so mad at myself. This is amateur. This is like beginner. This is rookie. This is... I made the mistake. I, I am so mad at myself. Bull runs away. Never, I've never seen that bull again the rest of the month. I look up to my pinch point, and a new herd's coming through. It's this big five. He's running. And I'm, I mean like a 300-inch five points. That's a big five to me. And he's running a, a herd of 40, and they're going through the saddle, and they're going to be there in about 10 minutes. And I just put my head down and run as fast as I can. And we're over, we're almost to 10,000 feet and I'm just climbing, trying to keep my heart rate down and I get to the saddle and I'm like, okay, I need these elk to not cross in the next two minutes because I'm going to need two minutes to get my heart rate from 190 something down to at least 130. So I'm breathing hard. I, there's no way I could shoot an elk right now. I'm maxed out. I got there so fast. Finally get my heart rate down. I'm hearing the bull bugle. He's pushing those cows. I look to my right. Here he comes. I don't see his cows. There is a downfall between me and him. His rack is paralleling. He's behind the downfall. He's going to pop out at 10 yards. I decide to draw because his gate is a steady gate. And I know that if I draw now when he steps out, I'll be able to cow cow, stop him, shoot him. He gets to the end of the downfall and stops. I'm at full draw. And then a cow and calf pass him and step out into the lane. And of course, they slam on their brakes and look right at me. I'm nine yards from a cow and calf. I'm at full draw. I'm like, no problem. I'm just going to stay at full draw. They'll keep walking. He'll step out. I'll shoot this three hundo and it'll be September 9th. One tag punched. I held at full draw for it's on video. It's like two and a half minutes. And I finally, I didn't choose to let down. The bow goes down. I can't keep my bow um, drawn that much longer than that. Cows take off running. Bull takes off running September 9th. Blew two opportunities on two nice bulls within probably 20 minutes. And I'm walk shaming back to spike camp. And then I ended up getting back to spike camp, breaking it all down because where it was and where I was finding elk, it was too far. And I told my dad I was going to leave him and his horses. I was going to ride back to base camp and come in a different way on foot, set up a new spike camp and hunt there until I kill. And that's what I did. So I rode out, got resupplied came in a different way, hiked six miles. I put enough food for 10 days. My pack weighed 76 pounds. And I, I got back in there, set up a beautiful spike camp. And I got to able to hunt that evening and watch elk, see where they went, study, observe, take advantage. And then the next morning, it was just full on rut fest. So September 10th was my first morning of real good bugling. And what it was is I found two herds came together at the same food source in this high country meadow. And in the morning, the two herd bulls were sorting cows and trying to push their cows away from the other. These herd bulls were doing herd gathering bugles is what I call them. But you know, the kind of bugles where it's got the, 
you know, it's not like a normal high-pitched bugle. They're telling their cows, they're pushing their cows, and I'm watching these bulls cut off their lead cows and make them go the way they want. It was awesome. So I got a big 336 point, and then it's that 300-inch five point, and each one of them's got 30-something cows. It was quite the... I don't know. It was just really cool to watch, but I was too far away to do anything. And I didn't really have good wind to just go jump in the middle. And it was very, very wide open. So I just let them each go their own way, study which way they went. And of course, I decided to go after the 330 bull. So I went over to where he bedded. And this is kind of some observations that I'm seeing consistently that I think maybe some of you might relate to. And I can offer some theories, but I really don't have a clue what the hell's going on. But this bull beds, I decide to get as close to this herd as possible. And by the way, I let them bed for four hours. I waited till one o'clock to come in. I wanted the cows super settled. I wanted no chance of the cows bumping. I got in probably about 80 yards, wide open timber, and I'm like crawling on my knees and I finally can see the cows. I can see the bull. And so I was going to bubble hunt, meaning just stay where I was and wait for them to get up. But at the same time, I realized that this bull was pretty hot that morning. This might be an opportunity to get him to come in to a really close archery range. And I liked the topography. I had higher ground. I had good shooting lanes. And I could see him. It wasn't like I was blinded by a bunch of cows and, and could only hear the bull. I could hear and see him. So I started off with a few very soft, subtle calf sounds, which I think is your safest sound. He didn't bugle. And then the cows are kind of looking around. And so I shut up, let 10 minutes go by, started another series of calf calls. He doesn't bugle. The cows look around and then one cow gets up and I'm like, that's probably not great. So I let off a few cow calls and another cow stood up. So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to let off a soft squeaker. Did a squeaky little spike bugle. And then the rest of the herd gets up and they start running away from the sound I made. And the herd bull gets up. And he's 45 yards away. I just need him to go through my lane. I pull back and I'm just waiting for him to step through my lane. I'm on a cow call. He kind of goes straight away from me and then cuts left. And there was a branch blocking him at about 55. Couldn't get a shot. The point of this is that I should have just bubble hunted because these elk did not have a tolerance for any synthetic elk sounds. This herd bumps. And I mean, this is the biggest bump I've personally seen where I was hunting. They went down a saddle, down a finger to the bottom of a new drainage that I had never stepped foot in, crossed it, up an avalanche chute, and then side-heeled through two other avalanche chutes and bedded. As the crow flies, two and a half miles, but probably real mileage, six miles. And I'm sitting there with a spotting scope watching this 330 bull living up by the mountain goats, and they bumped that far off synthetic vocalizations. I quit. I'm scratching my head. And this is kind of how the rest of my month goes. I don't have a lot of great video of elk being called in. Now, this isn't the easiest country to call in elk. It's not like thick timber country where you can get away and you have to vocalize. This is like if you have a caller shooter set up, you know, it's going to be like 80 to 120 yards between your caller and shooter. It's just because that it's so damn open, even in the timber. There's just no underbrush. I spent the next, gosh, I would say till September 13th, I quit calling and I just started really setting up in evenings and mornings only in transition zones where elk would transition. And that's about the only time I would ever hear bugles. Never, ever did I hear a bull bugle from his bed. Or did I hear a satellite pestering a herd bull or just a bull bugling on his own during daylight hours? It's like these elk have been trained to not make sounds because a human will eventually show up when they do during daylight hours. And I got a story to back this theory up here in a second. Long story longer is September 13th. I was starting to run out of supplies and I thought this unit kind of sucked. I didn't think the rut was very hot and I had another elk tag in Idaho. So I pulled the plug, hiked out, met up with my dad. He was back at base camp. He was getting really frustrated, experiencing very similar things. And he had a ton of hunting pressure in the little area he was hunting. And it was guys from like Wisconsin, guys from Arkansas, guys from Missouri. I mean, there's just a lot of dudes hunting where my dad was. And my dad was literally built building brush blinds in timber pockets where elk bedded and staying in these brush blinds all day. 
And this actually was something my buddy Josh was doing as well. He found a little micro meadow inside of a bedroom area, built a brush blind, sat up for four days. And on the fourth day, a six point came in with his cows in the morning. And Josh was able to shoot it at 20 yards broadside out of his brush blind, never making a sound. And my dad was able to pack that bull out with his horses. And that was Josh Crawford. This is the guy who helps me run our discomfort app. He was able, that's the second bull with a bow. And so he was the first one to draw blood where we were. And I was excited for him, but it's not the sexiest elk hunting. It is all ambush style elk hunting, no vocalizations. And if you do have to make vocalizations, it should be to stop an elk, not to call one in. So I leave, I get in my truck that night on the 13th and I drive five hours to a new to me unit. That's pretty hyped up as one of the best units in Idaho. Some of you are going to figure out where I went. Some of you know where I went. I had high expectations. My buddy Joel Turner had this tag and he went down there earlier in the month and sent me a big long novel text saying, hey, I'm going back to Montana. This unit's garbage. I'm not coming back all month. And I, and Joel's not an Idaho resident. And I was like, you're going to waste that tag. And he's like, never going back there. Too many people. I hate the terrain. The elk don't play ball. So I was like, oh, dang. Well, I had done some serious e-scouting in this new to me unit. I knew where to go. I had a good inkling as where I needed to be. And I roll up in the dark at about 10 PM and uh, it's dark out. And I pull up, get out of my truck and I'm hearing elk bugle all above me and it's 10 o'clock and they're partying hard. And I'm like, hell yes, this is something I haven't heard where I just was threw out a cot, laid in bed, listened to bugles until like midnight. Then I finally fell asleep, got up at five the next day, hiked the three miles up to where I heard the elk. They're ripping right as it's getting light, I move in on them. I don't make a sound. I get to about 40 yards from this herd bull, just about to cross, crest this little finger and see if I can get a shot at him. And this cow stands up. She busts me. She stares me down. She runs. The herd bull sees that they take off. I spent three days in this unit. I covered, I don't know how many miles. I'm not going to give you stats, but y'all know I'm fit and I can hike and I'm just covered so much country. I got many, many bulls located through location bugles, but anytime I would get close to elk and try, and this is the type of terrain where it is so brushy and thick. It reminds me of North Idaho. This is not a place where I can sneak into elk when they're bugling. It's too loud. This is not a place where I can use binoculars. It's too thick. And this is a place where the further I went, the more hunters I ran into. And the way that the terrain is, it's like there's a national forest road running the circumference of the unit. And then anytime you go deep, you're just going to run into more hunters. I hated it. And then when I see people hunting as a camp, it would be like 13, 15 campers as one elk camp. I've never seen shit like that before. I've seen like a camper or a couple tents, but never like a burning man crowd of elk hunters sharing 13, 14 campers and 13, 14 side-by-sides. And I mean, I'm sure the elk numbers are good there, but they're not responding to elk vocalizations. They're getting called at a lot. They're getting pushed around. My best hunting while I was there was literally finding places where like, say there's a beaver pond that was a half mile long of just marsh where you can't cross. I would put on hip waders. Yes. I packed those cross a beaver pond from the road, go up a couple hundred yards, get into elk right away. And then of course I wouldn't make a sound. I'd try to sneak in. It's too thick. They'd hear me. Or if I did vocalize, they'd shut up or they'd run away or they'd maybe bugle once and then get further away. It was very frustrating. I did this for three days on September 16th. After the morning hunt, I pulled out. I'm going back to hunt with my dad. This place is hot garbage. Now I will say one of my homies came down to this unit at the beginning of the month. And I believe he killed a 350, 360 bull on September 6th. And he didn't use any vocalizations. He said this bull bugled the whole time and he snuck in and got a great shot. So congrats to my homie. You know who you are, but that was not the case when I was there. We'll come back to that idea of potentially hunting the first week and hitting it as hard as ever before the elk get pressured. I think that's going to be a key takeaway for me going forward. So anyways, I drive all the way back and meet up with my dad. I typically don't like changing locations during daylight hours. So that's why I hunted the morning. I drove the four hours during the day and I was still able to get out that evening back with my dad and at least glass. 
and I was able to study this one six point pretty well from my vantage. The next morning I got up with my dad, I brought him with me. We sat down, we watched the same six point enter the timber. That evening, we watched the same six point exit the same timber patch. I'm not being aggressive. I've realized I gotta be very delicate. That next morning, we, my dad again and I watched this bull push his cows through the same timber patch. That evening, after studying for two and a half days, I decided to make my move. I waited till seven o'clock to ascend up to the top of this timber patch. I just waited in the timber way out of his nose range so that I could slip in and ambush him. And I got set up at about seven, seven Oh five. And they never came out. And I sat there and it was seven 25 and I was like, what the heck's going on? And then I hear him bugle and he's just around the corner. So I pop up to the edge of the timber, go about 200 yards wrapped around. It's getting dark fast. And I see his cows coming out of the timber into the opening. I let all of them go by and this bull's 200 yards behind his cows bugling the whole time. And then he finally pops out at 40 yards, y'all 40 yards. This is exciting for me. And this is not going to be on the film you watch next month. We took this part out, but I had an action camera running and he steps out broadside 40 yards and I'm ranging him and he slams his head and looks right at me, staring holes through me. And I'm next to a big tree as I'm putting my rangefinder back in its case, my already knocked up. My release is already on. I like to range elk. I like to know the exact yard. I hate guessing he's staring at me. And we stare at each other for like three minutes and I can't move. And this is precious remaining legal shooting light that is getting squandered by him having me pegged. Finally, he bugles in my face, blows out my eardrums, turns broadside, and I come to full draw. And when I come to full draw, he hears or sees that movement and stops. And I got basically an awesome view of his body, but I can't see my pens. I had to let him go and he walked out of my life and that was, um, that was just a big bummer deal for me because I invested two and a half days of studying this elk. That's not like me to be that patient. Um, that's not like me at all. I'm usually very aggressive. The point of all that story is once he walked out of my life, there was no point to chasing him. I was at a legal shooting light and I kind of exerted myself getting there. So I kind of sat down for a second and I start hearing bugles all around me. I sat where I stood. I sat down for the next hour, not worried about getting back to camp or any of that kind of, not afraid of the dark, none of that shit. I'm just sitting there listening. And in one hour, I'm convinced there is 50 different bulls in this greater drainage that I never, ever heard bugle during daylight hours. I felt like these elk were trained to nighttime is the right time, which is super, like it's, it's kind of a bummer guys. Like this should, it's September 18th. It's, they should be somewhere on the mountain should be 50 bulls screaming, trying to suit her, trying to convince a gal that they're the man. And, and no, no, I went back to camp that night and told my dad, I'm pretty sure I heard 50 different bulls bugle in an hour. That next morning, my dad and I were right back up to where I was. We saw one five point. I cow called it in. It got to 70. It was for my dad to shoot. It's too far for him. We had to let it go. And the train was wide open. We didn't have a great setup. We never heard another bull bugle that entire day. So we literally, I'm just, my point is I'm standing in a spot where I heard 50, I'm not exaggerating, 50 different bulls. And the next morning we see one bull. He never bugled at my cow calls. He did come in and we don't hear a bugle the rest of the day. I was freaking frustrated, man. And so was my dad. It's 20 something days and I haven't killed an elk. I've been full draw twice. Then I got full draw just the other night, but couldn't see my pins. That's it. My buddy Josh killed one pure ambush. And we just don't hear, we just don't hear bugles during daylight hours with the exception of maybe the first 20 minutes of gray light. These elk are evolving and it's, uh, there's no wolves in this country that we know of maybe an occasional grizzly. That's it. So I spend the last four or five days of my Idaho time really trying to beat elk to their bedrooms and it's working to a degree. I'm having to get up really early, hike really far, get good vision on these elk in the morning, guess where they're going, get there, get the wind right. And I ended up getting full draw on two other bulls, but both bulls would not hold still. 
they were in the mornings, they're pushing their cows and it just, just bad luck. I mean, we're talking like a branch in the way on one. We're talking about a piece of downfall between the other one. And we're talking about one that just wouldn't hold still, even though I was cow calling him to stop him in my lane. So it was that full draw. I even had one bull that I bumped sneaking in, trying to shoot him in his bed. The whole herd got up, they ran, and it was such dark timber that I could track them in the timber where they ran to, followed them a mile, snuck back in, bull is raking a tree, got to 36 yards, got to full draw, and could never get that perfect shot because he, the way his body was angled and the way he was raking and the way I was standing, it just never worked out. And I'm just chalking this up to like, man, these are great encounters. All it takes is 10 seconds and one different circumstance and you're tagged out multiple times. So I'm not mad. I'm not complaining. I'm not salty. I'm encouraged. This is just enough bugle juice to keep me going. Uh, I'm trying my hardest. I've killed some elk in my day. I know what I'm doing. I just got to keep grinding. I know the formula. I know the formula. You just keep grinding. September 25th rolls around and I'm out of time. I have a scheduled hunt with three employees that work for Matthews at a special place in Northern Utah. I got to leave. So I said goodbye to my dad. I head to Northern Utah. I get there in the afternoon. There's, I get to meet those guys. We get to shoot our bows. I have a new cameraman, Jim Minkle. I've worked with him in the past. He is the best. He is using a red camera on this hunt. And if you, any videographers out there are listening, that is like, the most ridiculous, amazing camera. So I knew this is going to be awesome content. I knew we were at a special place where very few people get to hunt, especially schmucks like me. And the reason why I agreed to doing this hunt is that I may never get to hunt a place like this again. And I thought it would be cool. I also wanted to have at least one, maybe two public land bulls down before I went there, just because public land elk hunting is so important to me. It's so dear and near to my heart because it's so freaking hard. But that didn't happen. So I am elkless in Seattle, in northern Utah, and we're at the special place. I meet my guide. I've had guides in the past, not very many. Super cool dude. His name's Colton. And I didn't, you know, I didn't know if he was a good hunter, how long he'd been guiding, but I did talk to him that afternoon before we headed out. And I realized he was an outdoor writer. He'd been guiding at this particular location for nine years, 12 weeks a year. And he was a bow hunter and he showed me several pictures of some of his bow hunting success just from this year alone. I knew my guide was legit and I told him, dude, here's the deal. I'm going to glue to your hip. He has to tell me if I can shoot or not shoot. It's a eight year or older bull area. It's very tightly managed. So I don't know about y'all, but I'm not very good at deciphering between, oh, that bull's seven. Oh, that bull's eight. That ain't me. I'm certainly a lot better after this experience, uh, hanging out with Colton. Learned a lot from him, but that evening we went out and just got right into the middle of what I would call an elk swarm, 12, 13 cows. You're not going to believe me. 15, 20 different bulls fighting, literally screaming, trying to scoop up these 12 cows. And we were in the middle of it. And I didn't want to shoot an elk my first night out. I really wanted to get a vibe on the place, but Colton warned me. He's like, man, a lot of guys don't want to kill an elk the first night. They're, they they think it's going to be uh, just easy the whole time they're here. And he's like, any good first opportunity that you're green lit on a bull, I wouldn't recommend passing. And I said, roger that. And then he also was guiding. This guy has guided famous people like Joe Rogan. He's guided him many times. Uh, he had Chris B as his client the week prior. And here I am, just the elk-shaped schmuck. So that evening, I just... I can't even just, I can't even put into words how incredible the elk experience was. Like it's like nothing I've ever experienced before. It was like it was just it was prehistoric. It was the most bugles I've heard in two hours. Um, I probably heard more bugles in the first ten minutes than I had heard the entire month leading up to that hunt. Deep down inside of me, like if I was in your position, I would be jealous for sure because it's just like must be nice. And I totally agree. So you can't make fun of me because I totally agree. It it was nice. It was a really cool break from the public land hustle to just experience a really tightly managed area. It's like nothing I've ever seen on public land, that's for sure. Next morning, I think most people probably got sleep. I couldn't sleep. I was so excited to be there. I had so much build up for this hunt and I had heard so many and saw so many bulls freaking fighting and screaming and making sounds I've never heard that I literally couldn't get the bugles out of my ears. I didn't sleep 
an ounce that night. So the next morning I was already awake. I have done all my laundry um, leading up to that month. We're talking August 29th to September 25th. I did four loads of laundry, listened to podcasts, and then September 26th we roll out. I'm just going to fast forward. We got out of the truck. We hiked maybe two miles, got in front of the herd. And again, similar situation. We're talking like a dozen cows. It seems like there's literally 20 bulls posturing for these 20 cows that are ran by one bull. The bull that's running them is trying to push them by us. Another bull steps up and they fight and it's short and it's brief fight, but it's violence, pure violence. The other bull, I guess, wins. I don't know how they decide, but my bull, the one that was running the herd, 180s and walks away from his cows and walks away from this other bull and my bull's bigger he just lost the fight those cows go with the other bull all the elk around us are screaming at this herd and this bull is like i gotta go get water well turns out me my cameraman my guide were 52.2 yards from this little water seat that he goes to get a drink guide gives me the thumbs up literally doesn't say anything just other than thumbs up and tells me the range 52.2. I slide back, full draw. I'm using the UV slider. My pin configuration is 30, 40, 50. I put that 50-yard pin a touch high, right behind the shoulder, and I just pull slowly until the thing breaks on its own, and that makes the most devastating. It sounds like I hit scap. I did not. It just goes through ribs and crushes this bull. I was using a RIP TKO, total air weight 425, I had Josh Jones's half out, that titanium 50 grain. I was using the AEHPs, those are the hybrids, three veins, max helical to the left with a iron wheel single bevel to the left with bleeders, and I hit that bull at the top of his lungs. Didn't get a pass through, the arrow broke in half, stayed in him, he went 80 yards, we watched him fall over, and then on, on autopsy, we watched, we cut him open and saw that both lungs were crushed, and he just hit rib on the way in and the way out, and I'm just, I love those iron wheels for penetration, and the blood trail was pretty good. September 26th, we tagged out, and it's a nice bull, and I got to hunt that place for one evening and one morning. We broke the bull down. We packed it out. We were back at the place wherever all the hunters are at um, by lunchtime and all my meat's hanging in the cooler. So because this is a Matthews deal, my cameraman and I stuck around that afternoon evening and did some content, some photo shoots, all that stuff. That's not the sexy part of what I do. And then that very next morning I was on the road, headed back to Idaho to hunt with my dad. I was on the clock. Uh, and that was September 27th. And uh, as a side note, there's one famous person that was hunting where I was hunting. I got to meet. His name is Matt Frazier. Spoiler alert, Matt got a bull. I haven't seen Matt post anything about it. I have a picture on my phone of the bull from Matt, but I can't post until he shares it. But it was really cool to hang out with Matt Frazier. He is so down to earth. I hope to do more content with him down the road. And if you don't know who Matt Frazier is, look him up. It's spelled with one T. So I made it to Idaho midday on the 27th i dropped my meat off in um gosh idaho falls of all places there's a butcher there called dns butcher he's got face tats he's terrible at communication text only but he met me he took my meat and i'm here to tell you after the fact he's the shit he's the best butcher ever so if you guys are ever in like western wyoming southwest montana anywhere southeast idaho and northern utah and you need a butcher look up dns butcher his name is dusty he's literally the best i've ever used and i usually butcher my own meat anyways got the meat taken care of most important concern and i head to go hunt with my dad on the 27th and i get there on the 27th come to realize my dad's gone home so it's just me but then i realized wait a second i got an inreach from my buddy tyler denham who, by the way, just lost his dad on his birthday two weeks prior. And he's the guy that runs the Elk Shape Gear channel. And he's a captain, firefighter, nicest guy on planet Earth. He is camped a mile away from me, so we connected. He starts telling me about he'd been there for a few days already. He had seen elk here, there. And I'm like, there? Really? There's no more camps. Everyone pulled out. It rained. The roads got shitty, whatever. So I spent that evening at Advantage glassing this area that I couldn't hunt because there was just too many hunters. Uh, and this is the area that my dad and I were hunting. I sneak over there 
I find myself staring at multiple herds and I'm hearing multiple bugles and I am like stoked. I don't have a lot of daylight. I can't hunt tonight, but I'll be ready in the morning, which is what happens. September 28th, I get up and I'm ready to crush this spot. Tyler and I decide which way we're going. We're going our separate ways. He's going, he's going to zig. I'm going to zag. This is where it gets really good for the public land hustle. I hike in the dark and I'm just following elk. I'm uh, at their tailpipe and I'm following them and it's dark. I'm at the red lamp from my peaks, dual trekking poles, bows on my back. Next thing I know it's getting light and I'm at 9,800 feet and I'm looking around and I'm seeing avalanche shoots. I'm in snow. It's steep. It's rocky. These elk are literally living at 9,800 feet and I have seven bulls in a basin and they're all bugling, but they're not like rutting. They're just talking. If you were to describe where I was at, like I would, I would call it mountain goat country. Literally saw mountain goats below me, three or 400 vertical feet. Literally where a lot of times rocks would just be coming down towards you for no reason. It's that steep. And I'm wearing the crispy Laponia twos. I should have been wearing probably the new Brickstall Mountains because those GTXs, because like it was just nasty. It was like a trekking pole. And so what I ended up doing this day, and I'm just going to condense it down, is like every time I heard a bugle, I wouldn't really make much vocalization. I would just get, just beeline as close as I could without getting picked off. And I wasn't bumping cows. I never saw cows, even though there were six or seven bulls in this basin. It was like all these bulls were spread out and they would bugle from their beds periodically throughout the late morning and then into the afternoon. And I would just spend my time going from one bull to the next, getting close, trying soft cow calls, calf calls, eventually bugling. And then they'd bugle back and they would just slowly fade away and get further and further away. And I was just getting super frustrated. Finally, about one o'clock, I've had enough. I'm like, screw all you bulls. You're all a bunch of babies. You don't want to rut. You don't want to fight. You don't want to have confrontation. I'm walking away. And so I do the old walk away where I'm just going to cow call and I'm going to literally walk out of their lives. This actually worked. I went, gosh, probably about three, 400 yards away from the best sounding bull of all seven. And I just kept cow calling and, and eventually I went up and over this little finger and now we're four, 400 yards apart and I'm just cow calling as I'm walking, getting further away. Finally, I get down to a spot where I can just sit down. My feet are killing me. I've been hiking all month. I turn on my phone, check for cell service. I'm almost 10,000 feet. Of course, I get cell phone service. So I'm checking emails and sending texts. And then I hear this bull that 20 minutes later bugle and he's 100 yards from me. So the cow call walking away, he used those 20 minutes to get closer. As soon as he did that, I got jumped to my feet, grabbed my tube, grabbed my bow, left my backpack, and I turned on my GoPro, or actually a DJI action, and I said, I'm gonna kill this bull. And we proceeded to do this song and dance where I would cow call, he would bugle, I would bugle. I would cow call, he would bugle, I would bugle. And we did this song and dance, and he took me from like, I don't know, we are about 9,600 feet, all the way to the tip top, around 10,000 feet. And we got to a saddle, and I could finally see him. And I could tell that he was standing his ground. This was his hang-up spot. If I took one more step, he'd see me. He knew it. I couldn't do anything. So identifying the hang-up spot, I failed to do that until it was too late. So rather than get busted, I just stayed behind the tree. And he 180'd and walked away. Once he walked away, I got pressure up his tailpipe. He went three or 400 more yards. We had another great bugle exchange. This time it sounded like he was coming all the way in. Finally, he comes to 25 yards. He's frontal. I can't, I don't like the shot angle. And he's also with another bull now, another six point. That's just a little bit smaller than him. And here I am at 25 yards waiting to get him to turn around or to run away or something where I can cow call and get a good shot. He turns around, starts walking away. I recognize immediately that's going to be a good shot. He goes through my window. I cow call at full draw. I didn't range him, but I was I had just ranged him at, man, 30. So he'd gone 10 yards-ish. So I put my 40-yard pan severe quartering away and let it eat. The quality of the footage is arguable. It's just an action camera. I don't have someone over the shoulder. But I hear the arrow hit him hard, and he takes off running in the snow. And so to give him time... I just flagged where I shot from. 
I walked all the way back to my backpack where I'd left it, where I got cell phone service. It's always funny how far you go when you're working an elk and you don't realize I had gone a mile from where my backpack was. I thought my backpack was 200 yards away. No, it was a mile. So I got my backpack and made it all the way back to the shot. By then it was about 45 minutes and I talked to myself into at least going to look where he stood in the snow and see if I could find my arrow or blood. I get to where he stood at the shot and there was blood everywhere and I couldn't find my arrow, but there was blood everywhere. So I decided to just trail him right then and there. It was about four o'clock. I get on the blood trail and holy crap, trailing an elk blood trail in the snow is awesome. I walked, I don't know, 70 yards at a normal pace because there was so much blood and I found the bull piled up hanging by a thread against one teeny tiny spruce tree that if hadn't been there, the bull would have probably rolled all the way down the mountain. And we got it. We got our bull. We got it done. We shot him with that iron wheel single bevel at 40 severe quartering away. The arrow went in at the guts and hit the offside shoulder and the entire arrow was inside of him. And then we did a little, you know, thank you, Lord. And then we got to work and we got that thing broke down. I did have a bear, a black bear, try to run me off my elk when I was on the last quarter. He came in huffing and puffing. And as I broke down this bull, so steep that every time I take a quarter off, the bull would slide down 20 yards and I never took the guts out. So eventually I was about 60 yards from my backpack, my bow and my phone covered in blood, working up this bull. And this bear rolls in and is huffing and puffing. And I got nothing. I got a knife. I don't have a camera. I can't film it. I don't have a bear tag. I can't shoot him. And so I start yelling at the bear and long story longer is my first loadout was all the loose meat and made it back to camp super late. And my good friend Tyler refused to go hunting the next day. He's like, I'm helping you pack. I don't care what you say. And I tried guys. I tried to tell him, dude, I got this. Although I'll tell you, I don't got this. It would without Tyler's help would have been two more days of packing out. So anyways, Tyler and I, um, we brought his bow cause there was six other bulls up there, but we got to that bull the next day at about two o'clock. And most of that time was spent just hiking to where I killed him. It just took that long. And it was about 2,300 vertical feet gain to get to that bull. And we did see a mountain goat again, below the bull carcass. And it's just crazy, right? And then uh, we got him loaded up. We deboned the whole thing and split him half hind shoulder, hind shoulder. I got the rack and we got back to Tyler's four wheeler. I would say maybe with a half hour daylight left. And then we got the rest of the meat back to my truck. And then I spent the next day trying to help Tyler get a bull, which we failed. So that was my September recap. Couple more things to note. One, when I got home, I had planned on being home for a week and finishing up archery season in Montana and hunting with a few subscribers, followers on Instagram and just taking them to my spots or going to their spots and just hunting with some people and being kind of picky and just having fun and enjoying some bugles and getting out one last time. I got sick as soon as I got back. I was depleted. I was around my germy little kids. And uh, today is uh, October 17th. And it's like the first day that I actually almost have my real voice back. I couldn't even talk a couple days ago. I don't know what I had. I'm not doing the test. I'm not seeing if it's the thing. I did do a telehealth appointment because my wife made me and she's right. And I got some medicine, but I've just been not able to go hunting because I was sick for the last 16 days, it seems like. So taking advantage of the time, spending time here at the family, making content and um, getting some light workouts in, shooting my bow. That's it. But um, I might go back to Montana for rifle, but I would probably want to bring a bow. The things I, the, the takeaways from this year for, for elk hunting is just like, man, that vocalization game on public land is tough given the terrain in, that you're hunting. Even I hunted terrain where the vocalization game should have worked, especially at the time I was there, middle of September, it didn't work. I think if you're going to hedge your bets on the best time to hunt elk, I think it's going to be really the first week. You're going to hear more bugles than you are the second week. Um, I don't do a lot of full moon stuff. I don't really believe in a lot of that shenanigans, but I do think the humans, the smells of humans, the interactions with humans, the sounds of humans, the machines, I think the elk start to figure out what's up after a week. I've noticed that the middle of September is getting harder and harder. I love the back end of September when a lot of people run out of vacation. That's why I absolutely love hunting Montana in early October. 
it's just one of these deals where I think you have to be a chameleon. I think you need to know how to make all the sounds. I think you have to know what all the sounds mean. I think you have to be a student of the game to understand the elk's behavior. Uh, you have to look at the weather, the winter, the spring, the summer, the biology. Where's the best eats? Where's the best sleeps? Where's the best security? And how much pressure are they getting? How far are they willing to travel? And how much are you willing to change up locations to get into different elk and to try different tactics? September. This was your September recap. You know, this this particular podcast we've done several years in a row. It seems to get a lot of downloads. It'd be more important to me for you guys to comment on whatever platform you're listening to this and let me know maybe just like some highlights of your observations. Um, is elk hunting changing? Is the rut later? Are the elk more spread out? Are they more call shy? Is it all a bunch of hype? Elk are elk and they do what they do. And I'm just a big baby excuse maker. I don't know. I know that um, not every year it takes me 20 something days to get one knocked down, but this year that's how it went. And I wouldn't change a thing. We had to really work for it, which is ultimately why I do it. I love the labor. I love the grind. I love the doubt. And I love the triumph at the end when it does work out. Delayed gratification is what elk hunting is for me. And anything that's worthwhile is that type two fun where it's maybe not as much fun while you're doing it, but damn it, it is rewarding when it's all said and done and you can look back and be proud of your effort and your attitude because those are the only things you guys can control. The other thing you can control is what podcasts you listen to. And obviously you have a lot of options out there. So I genuinely, sincerely appreciate you tuning into this one. Please, if you have an opportunity, give it a thumbs up or a five star or add a comment or share it on your Instagram story. Tag me. Let others know about it. There's a lot of competition out there, and I'm ready to compete, and I need your help. Guys, separation is in the preparation. We'll catch you on the next one. Today's podcast is brought to you by Matthews Incorporated out of Sparta, Wisconsin. I love shooting to Matthews. I love the engineering, the technology, the people behind the brand. It's like the bows are amazing, and I would encourage you to go to a local dealer and try one out for yourself.